I'm going to dive right into the word, but before I do that, please pray with me. Father, we believe that this is none other than your word given to your people. Would you take it now, illuminate it to our hearts that we may see precious things in your word. May we be aware, may we engage at a heart, mind, and will level with your word during this hour that we might worship you well. And we pray uh, all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So, last week, you may remember, I said that, uh, or the text actually taught, that God caused a flood that wiped out every human being on the face of the earth except for eight, Noah and his family. We said that the low estimate of that number of people would have been 750 million people dying on one day in one great natural calamity, the flood. But, and that is a big but, 8-1. Look at Genesis 8-1 with me. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. So we see that God is gracious to Noah and his family and he remembers them and he remembers the animals and then God causes this wind to blow over the earth to dry the earth from the flood but I couldn't help but ask this question and maybe you do too and here's my question that I'm going to try to answer over the next few moments there is three things in our text today. I just want to get that out before I go into this. God's sovereignty, the sacrifice of Noah, and then God's covenant with Noah. But we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God first and probably for sure the longest. Here's the question that I have, and I think there may be a slide, Michael. Does God control the wind rain and weather on any given day at any given moment in every place or was this just a one-off situation so you follow the question does God control the weather why would God be involved at such a detailed level in running the world is he involved in such a detailed level it certainly doesn't feel like it when I turned on the television years ago and watched Hurricane Katrina come into New Orleans and you saw the levees break and the flood come through and then they showed you the Silver Dome and all the people that were having to crowd in there you know in that great flood in Katrina the hurricane 
Over 1,800 people lost their lives. It's crazy. And the year before that, not even a complete year, on December 26, the day after Christmas, 2004, there was a great earthquake at the bottom of the Indian Ocean that created a tsunami that killed over 230,000 people in 14 different countries. You may remember that. And then in Haiti, on July 12, 2010, an earthquake hit at the center of the most populated city, killing over 240,000 people. It seems kind of random. It seems like these things just kind of happen. So when these events happen, is it just the nature of the world that we live in? Or could it be that Satan has control and he's causing these calamities? Or is God himself in control of natural calamities on earth? You see, these are not easy questions to answer because we just noted the incredible loss of life. But to answer the beginning question, which was, does God control the weather? I want to look at a couple of verses. Exodus 9, 29, if you're in Genesis and you just go over one book, um, Moses is talking with Pharaoh in Exodus 9, 29. And this is what Moses says in Exodus 9, 29. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hand to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Now, I've never been quite sure if I pronounce the word hail, as in ice drops coming down from heaven correctly, or if hell, H-E-L-L, so I'm not saying that. I'm saying ice drops coming down from heaven. Pardon me if I can't quite get that pronunciation like I should. But that's what Moses is saying. And Moses is clearly saying that God is going to do this for him. So God controls, at least in that situation, the skies, the rain, and the hail that was coming down on Egypt. Now, for a more closer look in the New Testament, does God control the wind and the rain and the weather? Look at Mark 4, 35 and 41. Mark 4, 35 through 41. Here's what Mark 4, 35 reads. <laughs> Sorry, somebody help Maxine get her glasses. <laughs> Maxine, I hate that. You shouldn't have to do that. Thank you, Dan. What am I going to do with you? I can dress you up, but I can't take you out. <clears throat> All right, Mark 4, 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. 
And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling with water. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. That's a tired fellow. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, listen how they question his motives here. Do you not care that we're perishing? Sounds like me when I am sideways with God. And he says, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What I conclude from texts like this is certainly... God is in control of the wind and the rain. God is in control of all things, including the weather. All things, not some things, are moving in accord with his eternal purposes. Therefore, all things are working together for good to those who love God. If God is not controlling all things, how could all things be working together for those who love God? There's no way, because there would be things outside of God's control that he couldn't work those things together for our good. And so even the wind and rain must be under his control. It must be. And then in Romans eleven thirty six, 36, it says, of him and through him and to him are all things. Not from him and to him and through him are some things, but all things. Yet, the reason I feel compelled to talk about this is because many in our culture, even some of God's people, suppose that God is in a far distant way kind of spectating some would say that's the deist view of God taking no immediate hand in the affairs of the earth he's just kind of set the clock in motion and then backed off and let the clock run what we believe because the Bible so clearly teaches it and from even the text that I just read God is governing all things at all times it is true that man is endowed with power he has given us that but God is all powerful it is true speaking generally the material world is regulated by natural laws but behind the natural laws is the lawgiver and the law administrator. You see, man is the creature, God is the creator. And endless ages before man was even on the earth, the mighty God existed, and before the world was founded, he made his plans. And being of infinite power, and man being of finite 
God's purpose and plan, it cannot be resisted or prevented by the creatures of his own creation. God's plans will be accomplished. So here's the hard question, and I mean this. This is a hard one. Did God cause those 230,000 people in the Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004 to die? Did God cause 240,000 lives lost in the 2010 Haiti earthquake? Ooh. Look with me at Luke 13, 1 through 5. All this is being brought on by the flood. 750 million lives lost. So, consider this. Luke 13, 1 through 5. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, him being Jesus, and the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Let me, let me pull up for just a second. Let me tell you what's going on here. Is basically the Gal those people in Galilee were coming with their sacrifices, and as they're doing that, Pilate is murdering them and their blood is being mingled with the sacrificial blood. And so the people are coming to Jesus and they're insinuating those people must have been horrible sinners. Did you see what Pilate did to them while they're trying to do their sacrifice? All right, now let's look back at the text so that that makes sense. And it says, he answered them, this is Jesus. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18, he's talking now about something that they knew about, we don't. But he says, or what about those 18 on who the tower in Siloam fell and it killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all of the others who lived in Jerusalem and he says no I tell you but unless you repent you will all likewise perish now what I like about this verse is sometimes I hear people in the church say you know God's going to go after them because they're so unholy a lot of times they'll say that maybe even about the homosexual community God's going to punish them and I think what Jesus would say is what he says right here you, you, you're just as big a sinner as they are He's going to punish you too. Lest you repent, you will face the same judgment. And so, God is saying in our text that the whole calamity, could it be that the tragic events that we witness in this world is a warning that the final judgment is coming and it's coming to the entire world. His power on display in tsunamis, earthquakes, 
hurricanes. And he's saying, you're all in the same boat. You're, you're in the same place as these people. God is doing 10,000, if not a million things in every single act like this. It has a ripple effect that we can't possibly appreciate or understand. There is a purpose in these calamities and in these deaths and drownings just like there is a call to us to wake up to our godlessness and repent and believe as Jesus tells them in Luke 13. It's not any different. In the flood, in our story in Genesis, God is mingling mercy and judgment. No man deserves life, and yet God does save Noah and his family. God is mingling mercy and judgment. Hard circumstances are often given to us, even God's people, so that we will hope in Christ and not our own strength. In our prayer meeting this morning, Mallory prayed this verse in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know another way to say this? And this is not a fun thought. So fun thoughts out for a minute, sober thoughts in. God is not so much into sparing people pain as he is into bringing people into a relationship with himself. In other words, God has said in his word, he will use pain in our lives to make us hope in him. That's what 2 Corinthians is saying. Our light momentary troubles, light in the sense that when, when Paul's talking about light, he went through a lot. Beatings, whippings, scourgings, shipwreck. He's calling that light compared to the eternal weight of glory. And so, God is not so much into sparing our pain as he is into bringing us into a deeper and deeper relationship with him. And so when we go and we visit people that are sick or, we ask, or we're asked to pray for people that are sick, one of the things that we should be praying, if nothing else, is God, use this to bring them closer to you. Don't waste your cancer. Don't waste your troubles. Let God bring you into his presence through your pain. Because in that pain, when you say, God, you're more, I'm more satisfied in you than I am in all of this, and I will find my joy in you and in you alone, that brings him great glory. Now, you might get saved 
you know, the, the TV preachers and all those guys like to come around and lay hands on you and boom, you're healed. One, I don't think 99.9% .9 of that stuff is real. I think it's all a bunch of hope. And two, I think God is more glorified when that person says, yes, I have this cancer, but I'm going to trust God in this. And if he takes me home, well, then he takes me home. I think that's more honoring to him than all of the folk, uh, I don't know the word I'm trying to say, just the fakeness that we see. Now, let me say this. One mistake that I think we make, and this is why this probably is hard, is that we kind of focus on one or two attributes of God usually that we kind of like the most. Like, here's one that we all love. God is love. Whew, that's a good one. Glad we got that one. God is gracious. Glad we got that one. That one feels good to me. God is merciful. Ooh-wee, that's a good one. Like that one too. But here's the other side. And he isn't a God worth worshiping if there's not another side. Here's the other side. God is holy. He's without sin. And because God is holy, he rains down his holy wrath on sin. And that's part of who he is. God is just. If God wasn't just, he would not be a God worthy of our worship. And so, God desires to display all of him to us. Because in seeing the full range of his glory and his character, we realize he is other than us. He is God, and we are not. And here's the thing. If we strip God of his sovereignty, like the, the tension, the rub in us is, how could God be a part of 230,000 lives being wiped out? How could God be a part of 750 million lives being wiped out? How could God be a part of my cancer? How would he allow that? Why would he have that in my life? If we strip him of his sovereignty so that we can feel better about him being good and we can't explain the mystery of why he would allow these hard things, we strip him of his sovereignty. What happens is on the other side, in our cancer, now we have no sovereign God to offer somebody. You just got a God that can't really help you. He wasn't really in control. He didn't mean for this to happen. That is hogwash. He's sovereign over it all. And just like the, when the tsunami came, think about it. Jesus stood up in the boat with the disciples and he says, be still. Could Jesus not have stood over the tsunami and said, be still? Yes, he could have. But he didn't. And we must wrestle as humans with why he did not. But we should not, in our wrestling, say, because he didn't, he's not good. Or because he didn't, he's not all-powerful. He can be good and powerful because he's God 
and we're finite in our understanding and I can't get my little brain around it all but that doesn't mean he isn't good and sovereign over all things and that he's not doing a million things that I can't see through the things that are happening and we call natural disasters or cancer could it not be that he's doing so much more that you can't see but if you could see it and one day maybe we will in heaven let's say just just hypothetically two years from now I'm diagnosed with cancer and I go through a tough bout over a year and I pass my children and my wife may grieve but one day when we get to heaven I think we'll go unbelievable God it's unbelievable what you were doing that I could not see and because you are God and because you're all knowing you did something so past me that in the moment I cursed your name in the moment I could not accept it I was mad with you but now I see it I see it Romans 8, 28 says, All things work together for the good who love God and are called according to His purpose. Not some things, but all things. All things. All things. Not some. All of it. And before this life is over, many of you know this already because of your age, it's going to be hard. Really hard. And I want you to remember this. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. You know what he's arguing? Lesser to greater. If I care about the sparrow, how much more do I care about my children? Not one sparrow will fall. You know what that means in the modern day vernacular? Let's say it this way. This is how Clint would say it. Not one little bird out there in the Whittier Mill Forest when nobody is around is going to fall off of a limb and land belly up and die without the Father's care. Do you understand what I'm saying? That not even a... I'm just, not just what I'm saying... This is what the Word of God is saying. Not even one little sparrow will go unnoticed. We'll die. We'll pass without the Father knowing it. God knows, and that little sparrow does not fall apart and fall to the ground without God's sovereignty reigning over it. Many deny this, and simply say it's the laws of nature. God's not involved at that level. But believer, hear me. The Word of God says He is. The Word of God says that you may be going through stuff that you can't understand, and it is so hard, and it is so painful, and it really is. But it is a light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that you will receive in the future. And we need to hear that as God's people. Because there's nobody that I'm looking at right now 
that's going to get out of this thing alive. Not one of you. Same end for all of us, including me. So, there can be no meaningless suffering for the believer. God controls all things, period. Period. When you go to the doctor and you get the diagnosis that you're scared to death of, he knew it. He knew it. And he's going to walk with you in it if you'll walk with him in it. Now, this is a significant transition. Uh, Genesis 8.20. If you would, look with me at Genesis 8.20. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Here's my question for that. Why did God require animal sacrifices in the Old Testament? To me, it feels, if I'm just honest, barbaic, barbaic, yes, barbaric, thank you. Um, It feels like beneath him to do this. To, to, to want animal sacrifices. So let's talk about it for just a minute. What is this about? God required animal sacrifices, and I think there is a slide for that, Michael. God required animal sacrifices to provide a temporary covering of sin and to foreshadow the perfect and complete sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Animal sacrifice is an important theme in the Bible because Hebrews 9.22 says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Do you know why that's important? Because God is so holy and man is so sinful that there cannot be forgiveness of sin without loss of life. It's that big a deal. Our sin is that big of a deal to God. And so, God uses sacrifice, but you, like me, might say, um, why animal sacrifices? What did the animals do? You know, I got this cute little golden retriever, and when I look at her little face it's the most adorable thing in the world and I'm thinking why would these animals be sacrificed what did they do wrong that's the point right there you know what they did nothing wrong the reason they had to be sacrificed and you couldn't be sacrificed is because you're a sinner they're innocent they just live in a fallen broken world that we broke for them And so God said, I'll use these animals because they're not sinners. They'll be the sacrifice. They'll represent what I'm doing through my son. And so we'll take these animals and sacrifice them because I can't use humans. They're sinners. That's the point. They did no wrong just like Jesus did no wrong. 
and he was sacrificed. And when he was, John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So all these animal sacrifices were all just pointing to Jesus. It was God's way of saying, I'm bringing a Messiah. He's coming. In the meantime, you're going to need atonement for your sin. So here's how you deal with it. And it's going to be through an innocent animal. And so then I move to my final point, which is Genesis 8.21. And it is the covenant that God makes with Noah. Look at Genesis 8.21. It says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Again, I ask this question, what was it? It's an interesting thing to think that the aroma of this sacrifice was pleasing to God like God has nostrils and he's smelling the sacrifice now a lot of times you know or maybe you don't there's a theological word and it's a 10 cent word and it's anthropomorphism which means the Bible is talking about God in anthro in a way that we talk about men and so it's saying that God has a nose and he's smelling but God is a spirit. And so, but this is a, a way to say it. And what it is that is pleasing to God about this smell of these sacrifices is this. It is the importance of a sacrifice's aroma. The, the smell represents the substitutionary atonement for sin that will one day be his son, the Lamb of God. So when he smells that sacrifice, it is a reminder to him, my son is coming and he will redeem these people. And that is a pleasing aroma to him. And so that is why God is said, and this is the first one here in our, in our text. So, in application, since God desires to use our pain and suffering, our first prayers should be, Father, help me see you in this. Don't let me waste this pain. As his children, that's what we want. The eyes of our hearts enlightened in the midst of our pain. And here's the thing. I believe because of the scripture. When you're in pain, wherever the area of pain is in your life, and for all of you, it's different, I know. I bet you, if I was a bad man, everything I own, that is where God is at work. Because that's where you're going to have to trust him. That's where you're going to have to lean into him. In your strengths and in your joys, we don't run to God. In our pain and sorrow, 
we run to him. And that's why I say God is not nearly as into giving us comfort as we are. He will allow pain. But he's allowing pain like a loving father who disciplines his child that they may grow into the fullness of his son, Christ. That's the point. And so God is sovereignly controlling all things in your life at any given moment. And if you're his child, that ought to be the greatest promise to you ever. Because the non-believer suffers and it doesn't say that all of that's working together for good. When the believer suffers, it's all working together for good. Our suffering's not in vain. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that it would rain down now on our hearts that we would embrace your sovereignty in all things for your glory, for our good, and for the sake of the nations. I pray all of this in Jesus' name.